Romans 8, verses 12 through 30. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been growing together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Oh, it's good to be with you all. Thank you, Lisa, for getting me a new shirt so I didn't have to wear a sweatshirt up here and sweat. Is everybody all right? Yeah? All right, because we've got a lot of work to do in this text. We've been uh, spending two weeks in chapter 8. Um, if you're new to Redeemer, we've been going through a series on the Holy Spirit. Uh, on the person and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in the past two weeks, we've been going through this text and the topic of the Holy Spirit praying for us and interceding for us. And so we're going to cover uh, verses 18 through 30, mostly uh, in this text. So let's um, pray real quick, and then we'll uh, jump right in um, to this, this text. So Charlie, do you mind uh, praying for us? Thank you, man. Lord Father, thank you so much for allowing us to gather today at the church. And just Lord, let us, uh, let us speak and let us act and glorify you for your will. We just pray over the Holy Spirit for this church that we can hear today. 
Amen. Amen. Well, um, unfortunately, the first time that I saw and witnessed a child being born, it wasn't my own. Um, I was about six years old, and my mom and her friends who lived on a commune um, and were hippies uh, all thought it was a great idea to um, have children watch children being born, um, which is a really bad idea. Um, and so six years old, I'm watching Charlie's Angels, I'm on the couch in a different room, and my mom says, Eric, get in here right now. And so I run into the room and I was like, oh my gosh. And then I ran out the room and I've been traumatized ever since. To which now, when my own children were born, I had to sit by Lisa's head and give her ice chips the whole time. And I could not see anything, all right? So, um, public service announcement, don't do what my mom did to a six-year-old. And if you decide to do that, um, save money for the therapist now, okay? Because it's traumatic, all right? Um, but I will say this. Watching Lisa go through this experience of nine months of every day walking through the anticipation and the hope of beauty, joy, life, but then also the daily experience of intense fear and uncertainty was unbelievable. I wanted to film Lisa going through this for my kids to show them how much pain and suffering they put their mother through. Intense pain and suffering and fear with an anticipation of passionate joy and hope. There is an already and a not yet anticipation of hope and joy in this text. And there's also a pain and a fear and a suffering in this text. And Paul roots this tension in childbirth. It's brilliant, actually. Paul, in all of his letters and in all of his theology, holds things in tension. If there was one word that describes Paul's theology, it's tension. It's the already and the not yet. He holds two ideas all the time, the already and the not yet the what is and the what is coming. The what already is and the what is coming. The already and the not yet. In the text, Paul uses childbirth. 
to visualize what Christ has already begun and what he is going to complete when Christ comes back. The already and the not yet. Church, can you say already and not yet? That is how Paul thinks throughout all his letters. The tension of the already and the not yet. In this text also, Paul connects us back to Genesis chapter 3. He hints at Adam. He hints at the curse. And he hints at the pain of pregnancy, which was in Genesis 3, and the curse of Eve. In verse 22, he says, For we know that the whole creation, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So the question we have to wrestle with as theologians and Bible scholars of today is, why is all creation groaning in pains of childbirth? Verse 20, it says, the creation was subjected to futility. Futility literally means meaninglessness. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Same word, futility, meaninglessness. Yet, there's tension, what is coming? Verse 21, creation itself will be set free. Creation right now is subjected to futility, but yet, verse 21, creation will be set free. Brothers and sisters, this is why I love the Bible. It is utterly realistic and makes utter sense of the world around us. We find right now that the cosmos is not as it ought to be. There is suffering. There is pain. And yet I find also in the human soul this incredible, infinite capacity for hope and boundless energy to do all we can to fight for freedom in the world, in this world. C.S. Lewis said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And in verse 17 of this text, we find we are children of God, heirs of God, and fellow heirs of Jesus Christ. And Paul declares in verse 17 that we are children of God, and all of us say, wow. That's what we saw last week. We are not made for just this world. We were made for Christ. We are heirs of God. And those who are made for Christ and follow Christ will, according to verse 17, suffer. It's an interesting word, provided we suffer with him. You see that? You are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Conditional statement. Look at the conditional statement. Provided we suffer with him. Whoa. You see the tension? Wow. Children of God, provided you suffer with him. Whoa. <laughs> Paul is utterly realistic. He takes Jesus at his word. 
We are heirs of Christ, disciples of Christ, and we will share in the sufferings of Christ. Because he takes Jesus at his word, and Jesus said this, if you belong to the world, it will love you as its own. And as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and as why the world hates you. And it will persecute you because it persecuted me. And if you follow Jesus, you will suffer. Now, remember, this whole passage, 12 through 30, is one argument. It's one argument. And the idea, the big idea that I want to get across to you today is simply this. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit speaks powerful, intimate intercession over you. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, speaks powerful, intimate intercession over you that enables you to endure suffering. The Holy Spirit speaks powerful, intimate intercession over you that enables you to endure suffering. There are two things that I want to communicate in that idea. One is I want to clarify for you what sufferings of Christ actually means. The Holy Spirit speaks powerful, intimate intercession over you that enables you to endure suffering. So let's talk about sufferings of Christ a little bit because the text says that we are going to suffer with him. Does that, does, do you see where I'm going in the logic of this? Because Paul is very logical in this text. Winston Churchill once described Russian national interests in the in 1930s as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. And if I'm honest, in my 30 years of walking with Jesus and my 22 years of being a pastor, I can say the same thing about suffering. Why do heirs of God suffer is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. And I have to begin with Jesus. Why on earth would the Son of God suffer? Why would the true heir suffer? Why would he suffer in this life? Well, the author of Hebrews makes that clear. He says this, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation complete through suffering. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, so Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. <laughs> Do you get the logic of that? Jesus Christ incarnated himself in flesh and he was complete in his humanity before God by suffering. And do you understand that he is not ashamed to, to call you brother or sister in your suffering? Do you understand what that means? Have you ever had someone be condescending towards you in your suffering? Suck it up, buttercup. You know what I mean? 
ah, come on, quit your whining. Yes or no? Doesn't feel good, does it? Jesus Christ has never once looked on you in shame, has never once shamed you. But we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. The writer of Hebrews says, but one who in every way, every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Do you understand that when you peer into the eyes of your king, you have never seen shame and disappointment? Ever. Ever. Here's the real mystery. Why on earth would Christ suffer on the cross? Why? Why would the Father send Jesus, the true heir and the true king, the truly sinless one, to die a horrible death on a cross? Why would he be crushed under the wrath of God for my sin and your sin? Now that is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Because why would the perfect son of God suffer wrath for my sin and your sin? Why would he endure the corruption and bondage that Adam's sin subjected all of creation to futility? Now that is the very important backdrop to understand in this text. See, it's rooted in a comparison between Adam and Jesus that began back in Romans chapter five. Chapter eight is a continuation of an argument that Paul has rooted back in chapter five between Adam and Jesus. And it's very important to understand that as a way to interpret this very challenging text. Um, this is a very challenging text. Um, so I want to read real quick. If you turn to Romans 5, this gives a little bit of backdrop to Romans 8. So we can interpret Romans 8 a little better as to what the suffering of creation is happening. Romans 5, 12 he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who is that one man? He, he goes on to say, Adam. And then in verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, who is that one man? Adam. And who is all men, mankind? That's us. 
So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So here's the argument. It's the same thing in 1 Corinthians. Through one man, Adam, all died. All of creation, death, entered into the world. And he's making the argument, through Jesus, now righteousness has come into the world. Life has come into the world. Righteousness and life, new life, has come through the world, right? You, you, you see, there's, there's, a, there's a headship of Adam, and through Adam, death has come. Okay? And now through Jesus, the, the true Adam, true life, has come. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. Now look at chapter 8, verse 20. Chapter 8, verse 20. You following me? I know it's hot in here. So everybody follow me? It's really important to understand this logic, okay? Because you're not going to understand this text, and it's going to get confusing real quick if you don't understand the backdrop here. Through Adam, everything died. Through Jesus, everything's coming alive, all right? 8, 820. For the creation was subjected to futility, meaninglessness, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Who's the him? Adam. Of course, God, too, but it's Adam. He has Adam in mind. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Adam. Now, creation, the world, all of creation groans under the futility of the curse of sin. And the image of God is broken and twisted. But, but, God sends Jesus, and now through Jesus, the new Adam, new life, new Genesis, new creation, hope is restored through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Sin and death have been defeated. And now, according to verse 25, look at verse 25, we have hope. We have hope. Why do we have hope? New life. New life. Adam subjected all of creation to futility. But now our hope is in Jesus who gives us new life, already and not yet. And that's why he says, who has hope in what you already have? That's not hope. Who has hope in what you've already seen? That's not hope. What do we have hope in? We have hope in what is coming. We have hope in what is coming, the redemption of our bodies. It's a new hope. It's something that is coming. So what do we do while we hope? What do we do while we hope? Ah, uh, well, we wait. We wait for it with patience. Who's waiting? Well, verse 21, look who's waiting. Creation waits. Creation waits. 
It waits to be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That is a profound verse. I hope you wrap your minds theologically around what Paul is saying. There are cosmic implications to your gospel that have to do with the world you live in. Let me repeat that. There are cosmic implications to the gospel you believe in that have to do with the world you live in. Let me repeat it. To be set free from its bondage, your world, to be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What is the glory of the children of God? The redemption of your body. What is he talking about? This world will be restored and redeemed. What does that mean? This world matters to God. Let me repeat that. This world matters to God. It is not all going to burn. But while it waits, verse 22, whole creation, look at that, all of creation groans together in pains of childbirth. Groans together in pains of childbirth. Groans, you know what groans literally means? Laments in pain. Cries in sorrow. While it's waiting, it cries in sorrow. Let me make this point. This is, I think this is really, really important in your understanding of the cosmic implications of the gospel is that as believers, in whatever industry you find yourself and service you find yourself, God has called you to do whatever you can to do with your labor and your resources and your time and energy to do all you can to stop and abate suffering and corruption and futility as agents of reconciliation and the gospel your call is to bring whatever new life you have in this time of waiting in your world to abate and stop and potentially even push against and push forward against corruption and injustice and futility you see that Wow, what a call you have in this world. So maybe potentially it groans and laments a little less. Creation waits. We also wait 
We also wait. Verse 23, and not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We wait. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. And this is where verse 29 is so important. And this is where the idea of Adam and Jesus is so important. So we are waiting. We ourselves are waiting who have the first fruits of the Spirit. And we are eagerly awaiting our adoption where Jesus is coming back, where the Lord is coming back to adopt us. And what happens in the completion when, when God comes back and adopts us? We have the redemption of our bodies. Everything is reconciled and restored. And so what are we doing while we're waiting? We're anticipating that day. And what is that day? Verse 29 is that day. For those whom he foreknew and predestined to be what? conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn amongst his brothers and sisters. What does that mean? There is a day coming where we will see Christ and we will be now images again. You see what, you see what he's doing? What did God create Adam and Eve to do? To image forth himself. What has Christ done now? Restored and reconciled what? the image of the true Son of God. And now, what is he doing? Restoring and reconciling us back to that true image. You see how powerful and hopeful that is? He is restoring and reconciling you back to what? <sighs> to the true image of the true Adam, the new Adam, Jesus Christ. What a hope! What a hope you have. And while you're waiting, and while you're waiting, while you're waiting, you groan. You lament. You suffer. It's like creation does. But in that waiting, there's hoping. There's hoping. There's hoping, always hoping. In that waiting and in that suffering, there's hoping. There's always hoping. There's groaning, there's lamenting, there's agonizing, but there's joy and there's hoping. Because it says we suffer with him. You see that? It's the sufferings with Christ. It's the sufferings with Christ. It's an interesting thing, sufferings of Christ or sufferings with Christ. What is the sufferings with Christ? You know, it's interesting. We always go to sufferings with Christ must be like, well, you suffer something physically because of the gospel. You know, and then, well, therefore, I don't suffer, so it doesn't apply to me. So God must not care about my sufferings. And that, that's actually not, it's not true at all. Here's how I would define sufferings of Christ. It's any physical, relational, mental, spiritual, psychological suffering you endure for Christ, Christ's name, Christ's cause, 
Christ's justice, Christ's people, Christ's kingdom, Christ's message. It's full. Right now you are suffering to be like him. You're suffering for him. And in that there is conforming right now. There is a conforming happening. Do you, do you, under, do you understand that? That one day there will be an image bearing, a perfect image bearing. That, that's, that's the end. You see the end of the text is, there will be a day of glory, a perfect image bearing. But right now, there is a conforming. And in that conforming, you do bear the image of Christ. It's not perfect. But you are the body of Christ. You are called to image Christ. And in that suffering, you are imaging Christ. Are you suffering through forgiveness and learning how to forgive? You are imaging Christ as you suffer through learning how to forgive. Are you walking through learning betrayal? Because you stood or are standing for what Christ stands for. Are you being shamed because you are protecting the widow, the orphan, the sinner, the weak? Are you enduring a hard providence in ministry, in work, in Christ's name? Are you being pruned? John 15 type pruning. Learning to remain in Christ. Are you being slandered for standing and telling the truth or remaining sexually pure, sexually whole? Are you feeling the weight of not returning evil for evil? Are you learning the pain of going low in humility when others are going to keyboard courage and acting very unloving? Are you learning lament and sorrow, the way of Christ's sufferings? Are you taking the low position, walking, washing feet, seeking to serve, considering others more important? Are you learning to love like Christ loved? That is suffering. Do you know that? Yes or no, church? In that, the Spirit intimately intercedes for you. You're not alone. Do you get the logic of the text? We are waiting, but we're not alone in it. And this is where we have great hope. We're not alone in it. In the waiting, there is great hope because we're not alone in it. The Spirit intimately intercedes. Intimacy is a very, very powerful word. And I think it's something that we all want, if we're honest. We want to be close to someone. We want to be known by someone. And in the knownness of someone, 
We want to be cherished by them. Intimacy is we want to be close, we want to be known, and in the knownness, we want to be cherished. Now typically, we look to marriage for this, and then we get very disappointed. <laughs> Most think intimacy is sexual. It can be, but it's not necessarily. Intimacy is a very, very powerful word. Intimacy is closeness. It is the desire to be known, and in that knownness, and in that vulnerability, it's to be cherished. It's to be cherished. Lisa and I are gonna celebrate 25 years of a very close, intimate relationship in August. She knows me. <laughs> and still with me. <laughs> Friends, the great hope we have for each other and the great hope we have for ourselves in the midst of our suffering is intimacy. It's closeness. It's knownness. And in the knownness, it's being cherished by the Holy Spirit. Paul was profoundly confident in the person and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer in the midst of waiting and lamenting and suffering. And my question to you is, are you when people are suffering around you? I remember I had a good friend that I was sitting with and in one week, he was diagnosed with a massive brain tumor and his brother fell off a five-story building and fell on an iron rod and was instantly killed in one week. And I'm sitting with him in his room, my arm around his shoulder, and he's just weeping. I've sat in emergency rooms four time with young moms whose little babies are no longer alive. You know, that's the part in the seminary they didn't teach you. You know, it was just, just the intense wailing. Um, I think Paul probably experienced that and just, what do I say? What do I do? What do I... You see, that's where you start really 
getting pressed on what do you actually believe about your Lord? And what do you actually believe about what you believe, about what these texts say, about what your Lord does? And honestly, how powerless your little words really are. You see, this text says the Holy Spirit knows your weakness and incapacity in verse 26. He knows you're weak. And he knows that person that's suffering that you're trying to care for is very weak. He knows everything about you, according to verse 27. He searches your heart. <laughs> you see that? He's intimate, man. He knows you. He searches everything about you. There's nothing hidden, absolutely nothing hidden. You trust that about the Holy Spirit? Absolutely nothing hidden. Even the things that you wanna hide, nothing hidden. That's intimacy. He knows you're weak. He knows you're weak. He knows you do not have the capability. Cat's out of the bag, folks. You're weak. Doesn't that feel good? You're looking at me like I'm dumb. That feels really good. The city prides itself on hiding its weakness. And we all know everybody's weak. We know it. He knows you love God. That's why he wants to do good to you. Verse 28. He knows you love God. So go back to 8 verse 1. Stop condemning yourself. There's no condemnation for you, church. The Holy Spirit is intimately aware. He knows you love God. He knows it. He knows you want to obey him. Church, does that make sense? You ever wondered in suffering, Lord, what the heck, man? You know I love you. What are you doing? Have you ever thought that? You're still looking at me like I'm dumb. Church, say something, man. Like, yes or no? He does. He knows you love him. And it pleases him. He knows you're clueless. He knows you're clueless. You do not know what you ought to pray for according to verse 26. He knows it. You see that in the text? He knows it. You don't know what you ought to pray for. So what does he do? He intimately, powerfully intercedes for you. He says, I got you. I know you. I know your weakness. And I know what you need because I know the will of God. I know you love him and I know his will. So I'm gonna pray for you. He prays for you, he intercedes for you and he groans. Same word used for creation, same word used for you, groans for you. The Holy Spirit groans too deep for words. He laments with you. Church, let me repeat that. 
The ministry of the Holy Spirit in the midst of your sufferings is to lament with you. You are not alone. He laments with you. Have you ever at some point in your sufferings thought, where are you, God? He's right with you. Groaning with words or groans too deep for words. He knows exactly what to pray for. And he has the power to work all things for your good. I love how Gordon Fee, I think he rightly interprets verse 28. There are actually four ways to interpret verse 28. Um, Gordon Fee interprets it this way. If you look at verse 28, the spirit works all things together for the good of those who love God. It is the ministry of the spirit to pray for you, to intercede for you, to groan with you, to lament for you and with you. He knows the will of God. He's empowering you. He's interceding for you. And then he's working things for you and with you. And then he is, he is conforming you to the image. He's, he's, his ministry is, is all for you, empowering you, praying for you, helping you, sustaining you, entering into your suffering, intimately aware, doing all that he can, powerfully working in you, right? Doing his work. And then one day, one day, one day, those he called, those he justified, he will one day glorify. The work will be done. All will be over. All of it. No more suffering. No more sin. Image of Christ. Peace. Shalom. No more futility. It's all done. The work's accomplished. God is with man and man is with God. What a hope. What a hope. So brothers and sisters, in in this time, in between times, in this time of the already and the not yet, it, it is a time of, of groaning. Uh, it is a time of labor. Um, uh, but it is a time of great hope. Great hope. And church, my encouragement to you is do not lose that hope. Do not be cynical. We have a great hope in Jesus Christ. Lord God, I pray that as we enter into communion, that we would see firsthand Jesus Christ and have renewed hope. Lord, I pray for those that are suffering, whether that is suffering for the name of Christ or suffering physically, that you would come and intercede powerfully, Holy Spirit. Come and minister your power in Jesus' name. Amen.